listeners, welcome to episode 3, episode 2B, I'm not sure what we're going to call this one yet, of the Interdisciplinary History Podcast. I'm still Sloane, Victoria's still here, and we are so excited you're listening. Today we are continuing on uh, the series that we, I guess, kind of started last week. Uh, so we've got a couple of more McEwen faculty we're going to interview. First, we are going to interview Dr. Hannon of the Department of Humanities. How are you both? Good, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty busy times, but yeah, I think I can kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully you guys can as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, oh. we, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask, did we decide what we're doing with the intro thing? Like, do I have to sort of talk about myself at the beginning? or? If you I mean? don't mind. I know no one yeah. likes talking about themselves, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's better to do it like that, I think. Like, at least okay. with our previous interviews, it just... Okay, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, this seems like a great project that you guys are working on, so thanks for including me. Um, so my name is Dr. Sean Hannon, and I teach in the Humanities Department here at McEwen. I mostly teach history courses, although I also teach in our Humanities stream, which is kind of a great books, liberal arts uh, uh, seminar course, or I guess it's a, it's a series of seminar courses. Um, within history, I teach pretty broadly. I teach late antiquity, middle ages, and all the way up to early modern because I, I teach the Renaissance Reformation course, which pushes us into the 16th century. But right when we get about to the year 1600, I usually stop because I don't feel particularly comfortable uh, going too far beyond that. Um, on the research side of things, uh, I uh, just wrote uh, a book recently that came out in April 2020 called On Time, Change, History, and Conversion. It's part of the Reading Augustine series, which is all about books on this uh, late ancient Christian author named Augustine of Hippo, who lived in North Africa and died in 430 CE. Um, but the point of the Reading Augustine series is to basically to put Augustine into conversation with contemporary thinkers. So... I look at what Augustine has to say about the philosophy of time, and then I look at modern philosophy of time and debates about, you know, the Big Bang and uh, debates about mindfulness, all these sort of contemporary issues that relate to temporality, and I build the chapters out of those ancient modern conversations. So that's what I've been working on the last few years. Now I'm kind of pivoting more in the medieval direction. I'm currently co-authoring a book on the reception of medieval mysticism in 19th century Germany, where I'm the person responsible for the medieval mysticism expertise, and the other author is the person responsible for the 19th century German historical details. So we're kind of bringing our expertises together, trying to come up with a cool co-authored book. So yeah, that's that's what I teach. That's what I research. That's really cool. I uh, awesome. will make sure to have a link to where people can buy your book in the description of the show. Great. Um, Right. Let's get into some of the questions. Yeah. So forgive me for the way I asked this, but you've always been the digital humanities guy on campus. Do you feel a little vindicated by the move that's (laughs) happened in the last couple of months? Not really, just because it's uh, overall just too sad of a situation to feel something positive Fair. like that. Um, and I also have no issues whatsoever with folks who, you know, just prefer kind of more old school <laughs> methods, which, you know, in, in certain contexts I do as well. Uh, when I teach Humanities 101 or Humanities uh, 202, those are courses where the real goal is just to sort of sit down read a book from cover to cover over the you know period of two to three weeks each and you know try to actually figure out what's going on at a pretty deep level 
of interpretation. So in a course like that, I'm not necessarily in a rush to force digital humanities on people. In some of my mm-hmm. history survey courses, I find it's actually quite helpful to dig into the digital resources because we're covering so much and it's so broad, right? Uh, and sometimes instead of having a research paper assignment where sometimes students are, they're still operating at a level of kind of uh, generality that it's hard to come up with a really good research topic. And so you get papers, topics that are like, you know, I'm going to talk about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. It's like, well, that's not really a paper topic. That's, you know, this huge historical uh, set of questions. Whereas if you turn it into a digital mapping assignment or a timeline assignment uh, or something I'm developing now this fall, the research infographic assignment, uh, you can kind of build in kind of transferable skills and these cool little digital tools and also give students a chance to kind of, I guess, produce something that is a little more engaging and a little more sort of visually fun, I think, uh, than, you know, an overly broad research paper that can't really live up to uh, all of the, the details of the topics we're trying to cover, you know, in a big survey course. Yeah, uh, having taken a, a couple of your courses before, I actually really like having the digital assignments as, you know, typically you find yourself doing same sort of research paper over and over multiple Mm. times every single semester so it's nice (laughs) to have that change from constantly writing 10 page papers absolutely so what are some segments of uh, digital humanities that have changed with the pandemic response right so the most obvious thing this kind of uh, doubles back on the first question is that it's just become much more important (laughs) you know and then folks who traditionally have have not necessarily been interested in using these uh resources um and just to be clear, I'm talking about resources like Google's My Maps, which I use for the mapping assignment, uh, Night Labs, Timeline JS, which I use for the timeline assignment, and then uh, Voyant, which I use for quantitative textual analysis, and now Adobe Spark, which I use for the research infographic assignment. You know, a lot of folks had never used those tools before. I think more people are looking into them, especially the infographic thing uh, this semester, um, because there is just something that, I don't know, feels like a natural fit between remote learning in the era of COVID and the use of these digital humanities resources, um, in part because, you know, it's, it's just really hard to, um, to recreate that in-class seminar experience. And so instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and somehow force that to happen when it can't really happen, you can kind of pivot to these uh, digital skills and kind of say, well, at least we can work on this. You know, <laughs> at least this is a way to be proactive, uh, despite the, the terrible situation uh, that we're faced with. As far as challenges, because that's kind of rosy, right? That makes it sound like in the era of COVID, digital humanities is amazing and it solves all of our problems, which it doesn't. On the, on the side of challenges, I mean, on one hand, it's just hard to gauge how students are relating to this stuff because you're not in the classroom with them. You know, I'm happy to meet with students all the time on Google Meet or Blackboard or via email, but it doesn't always happen that way when, you know, when it's not mandatory. Um, the other challenge I found interestingly is getting the guidelines and the instructions across, which is kind of funny because the whole idea of the digital humanities assignments is that you get comfortable using digital resources. But when I walk students through those assignments traditionally, I do it in classroom and I might pull out my computer and put it on the uh, you know, I'll project it on the screen, you know, oh, this is how Google Maps or Google My Maps works and so on. But I'm still in the classroom and it's kind of organic and they can watch me do it. So what I've had to do this fall is make videos, instructional videos using iMovie, which I actually find very fun to use, but that's a separate thing. Uh, make these instructional videos where it's like a walkthrough 
you know, a screencast of me going on my maps and me explaining everything that has to go into the assignment and me showing you step by step everything you have to do. And to be honest, I don't think it would be very fun to watch those videos. <laughs> They're not very fun. You know, when I'm making a video that's about a, a cool, interesting historical topic, that's fun. When I make an instructional video, it's not fun. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking something similar might, might be the case for students when they look at these things, right? Like, oh God, I have to watch this overly long video. This is just, a, you know, this instructor clicking around on a website showing me how to do something. I just don't think it's a great way of introducing students to uh, these resources. So to sum that up, what I'm saying is that there's a weird situation where even with digital humanities assignments, it's better to have a chance to uh, show students how to use them in person, <laughs> not not virtually. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like what you said there about how not trying to be rosy about um, the way we talk about digital humanities, yeah. that they can't solve all our problems in COVID. And I think that leads into something else we were curious about with as students pick up these new skills and are being adaptive right now, do you think that they're learning kind of lifelong skills they wouldn't have otherwise? Or do you think that these are just kind of substitutes that aren't really offering the same quality? I think it depends. Uh, I mean, quality can be interpreted in many ways, you know. Um, I think I think if we're talking about, if we're using the language of skill acquisition, you know, in career development and experiential learning and all that fun stuff, uh, then in a strange way, what's happening right now is as or more educational <laughs> than what would have happened otherwise. But it's educational in that weird way where, you know, uh, a year ago, very few people I knew were familiar with Zoom or uh, Blackboard Collaborate, right? Just because they never had to use it. And now we all have to use these all the time. So in a way, we've expanded our skill set because, you know, even my aunt knows how to like <laughs> talk on Zoom now, right? Um, <laughs> but that's not, you know, that's not really what we're going for with post-secondary education, right? What we really want is that in the classroom interaction, interpersonal conversation, you know, kind of the, the that, that spirit of the liberal arts tradition where we're actually trying to understand a text together, right? So in, in the humanities, it's, we're doing that in a, in a great books way, right? With Hume 101 and 102. Uh, in history courses, we're, we're doing that more with primary sources, right? So my job in those courses is sometimes to give you like, you know, the lecture and, and the context. But they, at the end of the day, especially when you get to the higher level, 300, 400 level history courses, it should still be about being in a room, talking about a text, figuring out what that text means through uh, well-informed conversation uh, with your peers, right? Guided by an instructor. I mean, that's what we're going for. And that's the thing that basically is. It's not impossible to recreate digitally, I don't think. I mean, I'm enough of a of a lover of technology that I think that it could be recreated, but you would need to make sure that every student had equal access to high-quality hardware uh, and software from their homes and that they were comfortable using it from home. And uh, basically, you'd, you'd have to make it so that everyone could show up for mandatory synchronous uh, seminar-style discussions. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that right now because of everything I just said. Right? Not all students have access to that stuff. There's an equity-inequity issue there uh, that needs to be addressed before we could live in this sort of techno-utopia where we can have seminars that run perfectly through computer, right? Mm-hmm. So we're stuck in this middle ground here, I think, where given, in part given external factors, the digital humanities can't really recreate what's best about a university education, which is that in-person experience. So going from what you were saying about um, how some professors might not have had some experience with these digital resources before, do you find that some are approaching you for advice on uh, digital humanities? To a very uh, 
restrained degree. Yeah, <laughs> not everybody, and I don't. And to be honest, I don't think that I should be regarded as um, as necessarily the font of all wisdom when it comes to the digital humanities. A lot of what I've learned over the past four years has come from uh, the folks in teaching and learning services. What used to be called Cafe, I think it's still called Teaching and Learning Services. They have great people down there who run things like the Digital Humanities Faculty Learning Community, uh, which is a group that usually meets about once a month. Um, I've been a little bad about making the meetings recently, but historically, I'm pretty good at showing up. And we just share practices and experiences from the classroom with each other and kind of brainstorm about new new assessments that we could design and, and things like that. So that's been pretty informative. That's where I learned about quantitative textual analysis, you know, for the uh, for the first time. I think when I first started doing digital humanities assignments, it was just maps and timelines. And then I learned about buoyant and how we could run quantitative analysis on these um, primary sources in a history course and come up with trend graphs and word clouds and these other cool uh, visualizations. And, and that's also where I learned about Adobe Spark and Picto Chart, which I think is the other competing resource for infographics. So I've gleaned a lot from that. Uh, Kim Peacock, I would single out in, uh, in uh, teaching and learning services as kind of the actual font of wisdom when it comes to digital humanities, even though she works with people outside of our humanities department. But for her and for that department or that office as a whole, the digital humanities is kind of bigger than the humanities. <laughs> it kind of incorporates a lot of stuff that's going on in the social sciences and even some of the, the natural sciences. So Kim Peacock is, is probably where I would point people for, for expertise because she's the one that I go to um, when I have a question about this sort of thing. When it comes to research in the era of COVID, like student research especially, um, that's where I would turn to the library and people uh, like Vala McLean, who have always helped me out and helped my students out, even creating course websites for specific courses I teach, like uh, like History 304, History of Christianity, she made a website for that. Or, she, you know, we'll go to the library and she'll run a whole research uh, setup. And uh, she's done an amazing job, as have other folks at the library, doing the same thing remotely, right? So, for example, I have um, a USRI student that I'm supervising right now, as well as a uh, independent study student. And Vala has met with me and both of the students and emailed back and forth with both of those students to help them make sure that they can access the primary and secondary sources they need uh, electronically, right? And if you didn't have people in the library bending over backwards and going the extra mile to do that, I think it would just be so much harder for uh, humanities courses to function uh, in, in sort of this era of forced remote learning. Yeah, the library staff is really doing a lot. And even just that so many of them were willing to speak to us about kind of what library science looks like during COVID, yeah. I think really speaks to them. I, I suppose it's in the spirit of kind of open, accessible information, but it's definitely in above and beyond. Yeah, well, yeah, you bring no. up, but uh, no, I mean... Forgive me if I'm stepping on another question you may or may not have saved up, but I, just when you said kind of open resources, open access to resources, that sort of thing. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about quite a bit this semester as well, because it's one thing to uh, talk about digitizing sources, right, and finding primary sources online. You know, I always, I have, a, you know, a few sites I recommend to people. Some are better than others. One that's really comprehensive is the, the Fordham source book, right, which has all, a global range of primary sources, but is especially strong in ancient and medieval, so it works for the courses I teach. Um, and the Fordham Source Book is kind of great, because if you're doing a buoyant assignment for me, and you just need a bunch of primary source text in HTML that you can copy and paste into buoyant, 
so that Voyant will spit out all these data visualizations for you. It's super easy. The downside is a lot of the versions and translations of primary sources on the Fordham site are incredibly archaic. <laughs> they're out of date and they're hard to make sense of even in English. What's the reason for that? Copyright, right? Because uh, if you make a translation of a 2000 year old text right now and it gets published, it's probably going to be copyrighted unless you do it with an open source publisher. And that means that even though it's 2000 years old, it ain't free, right? And not just everyone can access it. So what you find on, on websites like the Fordham source book are these translations from, you know, 1892 or 1910 that the copyright is expired. And so they can just put them up wherever. And it's better than nothing, right? Especially if you're in a situation where not everyone has access to a wide range of resources, but still not ideal. So all of that's just got me thinking a lot recently about copyright and open source publishing and things like that, because you know, something like digitization really only gets you so far unless it's accompanied by um, this open source approach. Because then you'll, all you'll have is digitized information that only if you a few people can access, right? And that, that's something I've experienced frustration with in my own research, because pretty much all of Augustine, Augustine and Pippo, the guy I work on, pretty much all of Augustine's corpus is digitized. Not all of it is accessible, <laughs> right, without getting behind a pretty big paywall that not all institutions have, right? So you're really at the mercy of, of uh, the sort of gatekeepers of, of publishing, um, even with digital humanity. Right. So that's another example, I guess, of the limits of the digital humanity. Simply going digital won't help you unless you also have this commitment to uh, open source learning and maybe going beyond some of the old copyright limitations that we face. Speaking um, of research, uh, how has research for you changed during the isolation? Yeah, uh, well, it's obvi obviously changed, excuse me, uh, quite a bit. <laughs> um, I do, you know, in a normal setting, I do go uh, to the library quite often, you know, um, and I will put in requests for interlibrary loan and for, you know, uh, books from across the NEOS consortium. You know, a lot of the stuff I work on, it's like ancient Christian texts and so on. Uh, we don't have it just sitting around in the McEwen. We need to get mm -hmm. it from the U of A library, sometimes from seminaries and things like that. So it can take a little while to get here and then I have to go pick it up. And a lot of these things are not ebooks, right? They're not digitized. They're, they're just, they're old school. Um, and so in the past, I would just order a bunch of those and I would go down to, you know, <laughs> the library and I would have 10 books that had arrived for me and I would take them all out. And that's all over, right? So I can't, can't sort of gather up all of this information that way uh, anymore. So I'm reliant largely, as students are, on, you know, the aid of our wonderful librarians to help me find stuff that you know, because sometimes I think something's not digitized or not available in electronic format, but I'm wrong about it. So that's the first thing. Is always check with the librarians about that. And the other thing is, you know, I just have to rely upon digging really deep uh, when it comes to researching online and trying to find reliable uh, sources that I can use. So I've already used up the digitization of Augustine's corpus example. But a, a similar example would be for the, the book I'm working on now, where one of the chapters is about this guy... Franz Xaver von Bader, who was a mining engineer and mine manager in the early 19th century, who also was a philosopher and theologian, and who was obsessed with medieval mysticism and used his own money uh, to kind of uh, help recirculate some of these mystical ideas and mystical texts. So he's a cool guy, esoteric figure. Not everyone knows about him. It's not like there's 20 books about him, you know, in our in our library. 
So I've had to really dig around there and try to find old scans of his uh, collected works in German, right? And they're these very difficult to read. Uh, I mean, first of all, they're in German, but second of all, just on a visual level, it's very hard to make out what's going on there. But that's, I mean, that's all I have access to, right? If, if COVID didn't happen, I might have taken a research trip maybe to Germany, but more realistically, just to uh, a university uh, or a city that has, you know, a university with a full collection of this guy's works, and I could have just sat down with them. It would have been a lot easier, uh, but I couldn't do that. So I've just had to piece together what I can piece together um, on the basis of these scattered and oftentimes really poorly digitized <laughs> sources. So it's yeah. been tough. Um. Yeah, you talking about ebooks versus physical books. Um, the couple of librarians we've talked to so far, Robin Hall and Val McLean, had very different answers on ebooks. Um, Robin focusing mostly on sociology and the gender studies, talking about how ebook has been preferred for quite a while for them. Mm-hmm. And then Vala talking about the preference for the real book that you can hold and smell and be satisfied by the weight of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think that there's going to be a bigger push to digitize primary sources in all this? Um, you already talked about kind of the, you can digitize, but you might still be faced by a paywall. Are you hopeful that some of that will change? I think so. I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> okay. but the problem is, you know, it takes money to digitize things, right? And uh, the people who put money into that don't always necessarily uh, want everything to then be completely open source, right? So mm-hmm. it's a tough mix uh, that you're looking to, to kind of cook up here, which is a bunch of money and labor hours of people who are actually going to oversee the digitization and you know <laughs> a, a body that's going to provide for all of that, that kind of of its own goodwill uh, will want to make it as widely accessible as possible. And... Um, you know, I'm a little skeptical of how how often those two ingredients come together. Um, they obviously do sometimes, um, but uh, more often than not, I find that uh, you know people want to control the outputs of their <laughs> research labor, and so it's it's not not a given uh, that everything's going to go open source, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen enough evidence that there's a broader interest in making things openly accessible that I think it will steadily increase, but it's not going to be overnight. Um, and it'll probably be on sort of a case by case basis, um, that people, uh, uh, you know, decide to make these things available. I mean, what, I don't know if you guys have, have read about this before, but you know, some journals will say, Oh, do you want your article to be open access? You know, like when you're the author writing an article for a journal and you're like, Oh, of course I do. Why would I want to hide behind a paywall where people can't access it? I'll click this box. And then they say, oh, thanks for clicking this box. Uh, you now owe us, you know, $1,200 wow. <laughs> to make it. Because basically they're saying, if you want people to access this, you have to pay this sum of money that will make up for at least part of the individual access fees that people will pay to, to get at your article otherwise. But of course, no individual, well, very few individuals who are employed in academia would be shelling out huge amounts of money uh, to make their own articles open access, even though they want to, just because 
a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that you could do that would be by getting some sort of grant that would subsidize that payment, right? So then you would need to look again to an external body that would have a vested interest in making things open access, get money from them, and transfer it to uh, uh, the companies in control of the journals. So, yeah, that's just a good example of how everyone wants this to happen. It seems like it should happen. We want our articles to be read. We don't want them to be hidden. Uh, we want primary sources to be read. We don't want students to, to never be able to access them. But actually making it happen just takes, I guess, good old-fashioned uh, negotiation skills <laughs> with large <laughs> institutions that, again, are not always, uh, not always operating on the same page as, as you or me. So as a professor, what have you been finding uh, that, that um, students have been struggling with, at least with this move to online? Yes, I think, uh, I think in general, honestly, folks have been doing pretty well. <laughs> you know, I was, or maybe I was just too nervous going into it, but it is weird when with asynchronous video lectures, again, I love making the movies themselves, just spit them out into the void and you're not really sure if people are going to watch them. From what I could tell from tracking the views on my on my personal YouTube channel, it seemed like very few people were watching them until the midterm. And then they all got, you know, they went from like 10 views to, to 40 views like the night before because people were going through the videos trying to figure out, you know, stuff they could use um, for their answers. But, um, you know, I like making those videos. I'm not sure what the what the uptake is from them necessarily. So I think probably one of the big challenges is just that built-in distance between the instructor and the student, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're watching one of the videos and I say something that doesn't make sense to you in a class, you could put up your hand and ask me what I mean, right? It's just that simple. In the video, you can't. You can pause it. You can write me an email. But then there's all Mm -hmm. this lag time, right? And then I'll have to get to the email later in the day, once I've got through the you know 50 emails that were sent to me before that, um, and then I'll try to give my best answer, and then they'll go back to you, and it just really slows everything down, right? Yeah. And there are some ways you can mitigate that. I mean, the old, <laughs> the old school version of the of the digital approach would be discussion boards, right, on Blackboard. Those aren't great, right? They're not that cutting edge. I'm not sure how. I don't think people really like to use them. Uh, but then, you know, at the same time, you can. It, it might be weird to make everything sort of social social media style, right? Like, I'm not sure that I want people sending me Twitter DMs, you know, with questions about class all the time. But I want, there should, ideally, there would be something in between, right? Something that has more of that informal, back and forth way of connecting um, that's not as kind of unappealing as, as, uh, as a Blackboard discussion board. Nor is it email, because like email is like its own, you know, source of stress and anxiety for everyone. So I think you could probably set up better channels for quicker turnaround times, um, but I'm not, not quite sure we're there yet. In part just because, you know, this is, it's one thing if you have a setup where, you know, we're starting a, a program from scratch that's all about digital learning and you set everything up for that. That's one thing. But in this case, COVID happened and then everybody had to go online. And so we don't, we don't have this all set up, right? We're kind of um, trying to figure out best practices, um, uh, you know, as we go here. Uh, the one other thing, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to say about that, about lag time and, um, oh yeah, the one other thing would be just, again, if we could, 
fix some of those external, um, I guess those external roadblocks that are getting in the way of synchronous seminar style discussion, I think that would really help, right? Because then it, it would just be easier for more people to kind of participate in these discussion sessions and recreate the sort of putting your hand up and asking a question or, you know, uh, just making a, making a comment, right? It doesn't even have to be a question where you're clarifying what I mean. It's also just, you know, you, the student, should be telling me what you think about what we're talking about. And that mm -hmm. is super hard to recreate, right? Because very few students are, are just sort of emailing me saying, like, here's what I think about the text, right? It's always, oh, I don't understand this aspect of the assignment, or I don't, you know, I didn't understand this part of the video. And, you know, it would be nice to be able to go further beyond that and actually hear what you guys have to say and cut down the lag time on the feedback I get from you so that I could then go back mm -hmm. into my asynchronous materials and tweak them so that they better match what you want and we don't have to kind of play this very slow game of back and forth, right, over the course of, of many months. makes a lot of sense. It does, um, yeah. Yeah, calling it, it's also less stimulating, I find, even though that question gets answered, when it gets answered in response in the email, I'm not thinking about it anymore. So my question's been answered, but my my cortex isn't firing about that anymore. Exactly. So I'm not really um, a thought that I might have had about what getting that answer means. I might not be having right. Yeah. Yeah. I also found with uh, discussion boards, for example, you're talking about certain subjects, but it's I found it's more stressful than it is helpful. It doesn't really stimulate you mentally as like in a in-person class environment absolutely yeah that's that's kind of why i opted against that my, i i dabbled in it a little bit much earlier on like i think before i yeah before i came to McEwen, and uh i arrived at the same conclusion you did yeah they're just not fun no nope. no yeah oh uh before we started recording you had mentioned something called the Oral History Project that sounded pretty neat. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. This is something that I've just found out about uh, recently, thanks to, uh, again, the wonderful people in our library here at McEwen. I've been working closely with uh, Ava Revit from the library on uh, some service uh, that, that I'm working on here, some committee work. And that led us, in turn, to go to the archives, which are housed within the Humans Library, and look at some of uh, the historical documents pertaining to the founding um, of McEwen itself, and also just the growth of McEwen through different stages of its life as a college and a university, and, and so on. And that's been really eye-opening for me. But I don't want to steal the thunder of Val McLean, uh, also of the library, because she is kind of the one who's been spearheading this research, I believe, for years now. And I recently uh, was given a link to this oral history project, uh, which seems like an awesome resource that more students should be aware of, as well as more faculty. Um, it's an awesome resource for just learning more about sort of how McEwen came to be uh, the place that it is. And I think the fact that it's oral history rather than kind of a dry, boring documentary history probably makes it more interesting and accessible uh, for folks to engage with. Um, and, and more importantly, we'll give, uh, I think, a, a different sort of perspective, a more human, maybe, perspective on the history of McEwen than you would get if you were just looking 
at the paperwork, which I'll be honest, that's what I, I was doing when I visited the McEwen archives was looking at old office paperwork, trying to learn something from that. Uh, and you can learn things, but I don't know if they're all interesting. Things. So I, I, I'm hoping to dig more into Vala's uh, project soon. And uh, I just kind of wanted to give it a little, little plug uh, to the rest of the community as well. That's awesome. Thank you. And uh, for any of our listeners who are interested in more Val McLean's work and uh, who she is, uh, we have a previous episode, episode two, uh, where we talked with her about uh, the the situation in libraries currently. And we will put a link yeah. to the Oral History Project down below in the episode description. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Hannon, is there anything else you want to plug or tell us about? Do you want me to talk more about like the, the my next book thing, or is that too? If you, I don't know. I, I think if, yeah, you absolutely could. I think if you discuss your book again, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I think it'll help build it stick in people's heads. Yeah. Um. Okay, just let me collect my thoughts for five seconds, and then I will begin. <laughs> absolutely. Take ten. Take your time. <laughs> um. Oh, can I plug an article that just came out as well? Yeah, absolutely. I can give you a link to that too if you're interested. That would be great. Um, Thank you. Um, I uh, just had an art, a peer-reviewed journal article come out in a journal called Political Theology. Um, it won't come out in hard copy till next year. Print is already available, um, and I'll send you guys a link for that. I've also posted about it on my Humanities Commons website, which is where I kind of keep all my research stuff, um, and on Twitter and other you know social media venues. Um, so there's lots of ways to find it. Uh, I'd be interested in, in hearing what students have to think about that because it's kind of a, a new research angle for me. I try to take uh, what Augustine says about refugees coming from uh, the Italian peninsula into North Africa in the 5th century CE and put that into conversation with theories and theologies of migration in the 21st century where there's also a Mediterranean migrant situation. Uh, as you may have heard, that has some pretty um, kind of meaningful political uh, uh, consequences. So I tried to get a little more ripped from the headlines <laughs> than I usually do with my research. Uh, and it took a while. It took a while. This is one of those things I first started working on in 2016, and it only is coming out now. And even over the past four years, the situation for migrants has changed so much that it, it became very difficult at the latter stages because... You know, I finally had convinced the peer reviewers to let this thing go. But then, you know, I had to add these updates because 2020 and COVID and, you know, mm-hmm. the situation is much more complicated even than it was four years ago. So that's something I'm, I'm really excited about. And then in the longer term, uh, probably in January, uh, my co-author, W. Ezekiel Goggin and I will be submitting our, our manuscript on uh, the reception of medieval mystical theology and 19th century German idealism and romanticism. So I think that that'll be pretty cool. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of fun, interesting authors that don't get talked about quite as much as, as others. Uh, people like uh, Bader, who I mentioned before, Fichte, Novalis, and so on. All of these figures who are really interested in medieval thinkers like Meister Eckhart um, and Johann Tauler, and they're bringing these mystical ideas back in a very modern uh, kind of philosophical and, and literary setting. Um, and that is going to be coming out with 
uh, Routledge Press under the series Contemporary Theological Explorations and Mysticism. So it's good. We have we have it all lined up. It's not like we're just writing this wild project and nobody will ever be interested in it. We already have it locked in, uh, and we spent you know the last couple of years working on this. So I'm really excited to get that done, and then to uh, you know maybe uh, hopefully one day do like a book launch event surrounding that at McEwen, where we could kind of give talks about these these interesting kind of esoteric figures, which I think students might find fascinating just because they're so weird. That would be really, really cool. I'd be into yeah. watching that. Yeah. Things to hope for. Great. <laughs> Thank you for coming to meet us. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm excited for when this podcast episode yeah. comes out. So thank you again for talking with us. Uh, it means a lot, especially run by two students, and it's yeah, it's really nice. Thank you. We were very excited to get a yes from you thank just you because we know how supportive <laughs> yeah. of, of students you, of course, are, but just how yeah. busy you are as an academic. So yeah, having that was great. All right. Thank you so much to Dr. Hannon for talking with us. It was really great to have that chance to talk and learn about digital humanities and how that has changed in the current academic environment. Now, on we go to our next discussion with Lindsay Whitson and Martina King, uh, who are two librarians at McEwen University. I'll just let the uh, audio speak for itself. It was such a fun conversation to have. We recorded a lot more than we thought we would, and it was just an, a delight to talk with uh, Martina and Lindsay. So thank you both to you, you both for chatting with us. It was a really great conversation to have. Okay, I can go first. So I'm Martina King, and I've been at McEwen University Library since 2012. I I'm the coordinator of learning and engagement at McEwen University Library, and I am also a subject librarian for the School of Business. I do also lead our um, technology services. Um, my name is Lindsay Whitson. I'm, I've been a librarian at McEwen now since 2013, so a year after Martina arrived. And I am currently a health and community studies librarian. So I work with different programs like social work, child and youth care work, um, massage therapy, acupuncture. So a number of different programs within that, that um, faculty. And I'm also Kia Watson's librarian. And for the past year, I've also been known as the community engagement librarian here at the library. All righty. That's, that's awesome. It's a lot. <laughs> I think we tend to think about librarianships. Yeah, many hats. Yeah, it, one thing I've learned through this is that that it's there's a lot of intersections between different departments and and the library group. And you're right, libraries are interdisciplinary places on campus, and Lindsay's involved in a lot of interdisciplinary work actually. But really, we all are. It's one of the few places where we don't belong to a specific. We are our own academic department, um, as well as the service department, and so um, we don't belong to a particular program, so we can be a really good place to bring people together and encourage um, collaboration. I think that's, that, that's great that you mentioned that, because 
we're in the interdisciplinary history podcast and no one really talks about how all these sort of things come together. So I think it's great that you brought that up. In uh, our first meeting where we didn't get to record, you asked us why we were so interested in libraries. And I wish I had given you that answer because I think that really sums it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think they can be sites for real innovation in terms of putting people together um, to do research that they wouldn't have really come together if it wasn't for a librarian or a library event or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, I think actually my work with Hugh Watson in particular has, has, been, has been extraordinarily interdisciplinary in the sense that there are many people across campus who have that commitment and interest in learning around um, indigenous ways of knowing and being and doing and feeling and thinking. And as part of that over the past five years, you know, that that when you organize and you attend and you show up and you help, you do really bring sort of build that community across campus. And, and that's really led into so many of the different activities that, you know, today are a huge part of my workload. So it's very, it's really interesting. It brings people together. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to note that, um, you know, obviously humanities has a reputation of like lone wolf students and scholars, right? By themselves yeah. working on their projects and like not working together. Um, so I think it's really cool that you guys are interested in um, in collaboration and in interdisciplinary intersections, I guess. Thank you. Yeah. And for as well and progressive as McEwen is, we still find that just the canon of Western history speaks to certain groups more than others and treats certain groups in ways that are non-inclusive. And like, there's just a lot of lapses that we feel pragmatically when you start filling those in, you're doing interdisciplinary studies already. You're doing sociological work, you're bringing in anthropological work. So. Um, so I, I guess you guys have had the questions for a few days. Martina, we sent you them early. Lindsay, we dropped the ball on that, so I apologize. Yeah, Lindsay got some extra time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we've, obviously this has been a series of interviews we've done, so I am more just curious, like, do you guys have a place you want to start for what you are most excited to talk about? And maybe we do this really uh, jazz freeform style. Did um, Vala or Robin talk with you guys much about, um, like you've got some questions for me that are about um, where the library profession is going in terms of um digital information changing landscape like I think you're thinking print to digital did they talk about that any at all yeah yeah so I think then for me my answer would be a lot like Robin's because I'm from social sciences basically just that we've been going digital for a long time so this is just sort of accelerating things a little bit Mm -hmm. um but I do, I would like to talk about 
digital literacy and um, some challenges in terms of makerspace services. Um, and um, I think it's really interesting when you um, ask the question, what advice do you have for students struggling to engage in depth with their topics and research um, due to the limitations of COVID? I'd like to talk about that one for sure. So that's probably... That would, right. that would be cool to talk about, I think. I thought that Martina and I would have an interesting contrast is, is with my programs, thinking about them, a relationality has always played a really big role, right? That they're, they're helping community studies programs and they're helping professions and in-person sort of face-to-face -face relationality is, is huge, right? In all these different areas, it's like the digital literacies are always things that we think about but it's it's the ways in which I like I think about help seeking around digital literacies, the ways in which you've got communities, probably communities around campus who are or maybe more motivated to to engage in those literacies by virtue of their programs, right? That their their programs, for example, humanities, digital humanities, you have that real strong interest. And and with my programs, a lot of them are coming into it for that relational piece, right? That face-to-face that -face relating with one another and interacting with one another. And so it, you know, it's quite a different, when I was reading this and thinking about digital literacies, I think all librarians deal with digital literacies, but but it comes out differently, right? In, in how we practice. So I'll sort of see what Martina has to say, and then I'll, I'll sort of jump in and add different pieces. Can I ask, have you guys ever heard of the Interdisciplinary Dialogue Project? No. Yeah. No. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh because in talking about that engagement, right, and, and part of being a community engagement librarian uh, for the past few years, I've been quite involved with a project that has run, I think, I think it started the year that I came into my current position. So that would have been back, um, I think it would have been the winter of 2017. And it really came together because a few really passionate folks got together and thought, we care about talking from multiple disciplinary lenses about really important topics to everyone, right? Thinking about social justice topics. Um, I think the very first project was around the refugee migrant crisis. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they brought faculty members from different programs around campus to come together to plan a program, to bring their courses into it, and to allow those students that opportunity to really engage with folks from programs that they wouldn't otherwise necessarily have that chance to talk to and respond to and to question and to, to learn from. And so since 2017, that project has actually run um, three times now. We're actually in the middle of planning a fourth run. It's actually going to be happening in um, this winter. So it always happens in a winter semester. And originally we were actually going to be looking at the topic of Chernobyl because we had an, uh, there was an anniversary for Ch Chernobyl that had just recently happened. Oh. But then the pandemic struck. And it's interesting because there was a lot of interest around Chernobyl, but then everybody found themselves affected by COVID. And so the, the project sort of changed to, to look at COVID instead. And it's going to be coming up. And I think we have about, I think we might have 16 or 17 faculty members from across campus and they'll bring their courses into it formally. Um, but the entire campus uh, has the invitation, sort of an open invitation to participate in all these different learning events. And again, it really gets down to that idea of, of the value of, of university spaces that bring together 
similar people and different people and, and all sorts of perspectives to talk about some of those important things. So it's interesting that we're talking about sort of interdisciplinary communication and interaction, and yet it can be sometimes really hard to communicate those opportunities for that kind of learning, you know, at a university campus, right? That what are ways in which you get the message out that these types of projects do exist? Hmm. I don't know, it's hard. Yeah, well, definitely. I think if there's like a page, we'll link it in our in the description box. Yeah, you can really. I think with history, you can sort of fall into like a rut, and you hear about the same events over and over again, but you don't go into things further until like the smaller bits and pieces, or like the less talked about things. Yeah, uh, our first episode we talked about how the history of horror films uh, connected with the history of ableism and eugenics in uh, early ho Hollywood. Have you ever listened to Métis Faith? No, I haven't yet, but I... Yeah. I had the opportunity, actually, as, as part of the interdisciplinary dialogue, sorry if I, I hark back to this, there was actually an... No, go ahead. Popping, um, Spirit Bear Dialogues came from the interdisciplinary dialogue and then last year, um, you know, in, in January, one of the events was actually having um, Chelsea Vowell and Molly Swain, who co-host the podcast together, came to speak with us. Sci-fi and, and space narratives and the like, I haven't necessarily read very much of it, but one of the ideas that came up was that a lot of them are, it's always getting out of fear of colonialism, right? And I, I, yeah, it was interesting because I've never had it flipped in that way and and once they were speaking about it it made such sense right that that when we look at these different types of films we are worried about colonialism and what's going to happen to you know the colonizer there's a term i've come across and i i'm worried i'm misremembering it but it's um i believe the term is colonialist paranoia or something like that and it's one of the thing the idea behind it is when you look at alien invasion stories those are meant to unsettle because there's this kind of unconscious knowing in the audience that it's happened before on a different scale mm -hmm. that's really interesting yeah I've seen it in a lot of sci-fi that I've read. Uh, it's a really interesting time for students to be actually researching COVID. And there's just like there, with those big questions, like what is it to be human or um, what is art? Um, it's like an arbitrary line in terms of like, it seems to me <laughs> when something becomes history versus like modern <laughs> but I, I just wanted to pick up on the question that you guys sent, which I thought was really good in terms of like, what would I recommend to students who are struggling to engage with their research because of limitations of COVID? And in the historical context, that might be um, not having access to materials in archives or um, being able to visit historical sites, those kinds of things. Um, but I think that I think that there is actually still a lot available 
And I think that one of the things I've been trying to do is remind myself of all the things that I can still do. Um, so you actually can still see a lot of things, especially if they're outside. You can see monuments and statues. You know, you can um, go to sacred places if you're invited or <laughs> observe them from afar, right? Um, so you... Um, there's, there's actually a lot you can still do uh, physically, but I think the real key is to remember to reach out to people that people are still available for you to talk to, you know? Um, and if you're collecting stories and things, I think this is such a prime time. Um, our colleague Vala, I don't know if she mentioned about the, um, the project she did um, sort of collecting stories from McEwen um, faculty and staff and students um, about our time so far uh, from being a college to a university. Um, so that's available um, on the library's website. And um, I think that kind of work is more accessible now because now it's like everyone is used to being recorded and um, they're available <laughs> to talk <laughs> in a way that when we're all sort of running around, we're not quite as available. Um, so I think there are definitely some advantages in this time in terms of certain kinds of research. And certainly the amount of material that's being available online, it's like there will be a demarcation here where there was lots of stuff that just wasn't available, lots of conversations, lots of materials, and now it will be available because this is where it's happening is online, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's gonna be really interesting for research going forward. I think so too. You know, it's, it's funny. I was actually thinking in the same direction as Martina that it really isn't a scarcity of material. Um, you know, I remember I coordinate a co-curricular record for students and, you know, a lot of that co-curricular record opportunities really had to do with face-to-face -face interaction and learning and engagement. And the reality is that the opportunities to learn from and engage with, with folks far beyond Edmonton, right, really took off. And, and it wasn't so much that there wasn't enough um, opportunity for them to actually complete their hours. And I think in some ways it became... You know, um, I actually have to make a choice and I actually have to commit to a few as opposed to in some ways constantly being open to, to all the new op options that were, were suddenly coming available. And I- Yeah, we used to just go, what's in Edmonton, right? Exactly. You don't do that Like what's happening in New Zealand, right? That all these things became so much more possible. But one of the things that I think is, is one of the challenges is that when you're on campus, I think there's a certain momentum that comes with help seeking, right? That that you just you are around people you're able to be part of conversations you're able to have sort of peer-to-peer -peer support um but you're also sort of surrounded by all these different types of, of professionals who have their expertise and supports to bring towards making your your understanding and your life um easier or sort of enriched in, in different ways and i think that when you don't have that face-to-face -face experience you lose that momentum and so while some folks are going to be in some ways inspired to, to to probably be far more ambitious in terms of the directions they go, 
I think that others lose that that maybe important relationality that comes into play in terms of help seeking, right? That if it feels out of reach, you don't necessarily see the ways in which it's there in front of you, right? I think that speaks a lot to motivation as well, because the university did a survey of students of how they felt about switching to online last winter, and then they repeated it um, to see how they've been feeling about the fall. And last winter, in any case, definitely motivation was identified as one of the the biggest challenges um, that students were facing. And I guess I, I have been in my life a person who is motivated by going somewhere. Like if I go to the gym, I will work out. <laughs> I go to work, I'm doing my work. <laughs> if I go to class, I'm learning in class, right? Um, or, you know, if you as a student sort of went to the writing center, you would get help because you had taken the effort to go there, right? But I think that is one of the challenges now is that if that's a way that you've motivated yourself in the past, you have to find a different way because interestingly, now though, our life is appointment-based. So many things where you would just like go and ask or whatever are now appointment-based. And I think this is like a societal shift. <laughs> and I think that's how people are motivating themselves. Like, um, so I think, I think that area is going to be interesting for students in terms of... I think it's the spontaneity, right? That the spontaneity yeah. of conversations that of, of randomly yeah. inside somebody that you don't know and striking up these conversations. And, and if you think about it, the ways in which... You, you grow those relationships across your time in university that the friends I met in first year, typically, you know, a lot of those relationships really lasted the entire of my, of my time in, in that particular program. And so it, it really has created a, a new environment for students who are just starting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's this concept in information seeking <laughs> serendipity. It's yeah. um, something that we talk about in our discipline and um i think that that's what Lindsay is talking about in terms of like you know making connections and happenstance um just by going about your business um and it does feel like in this appointment world like that has been taken out of it and now it's all on us to um initiate everything like there's no um running into people and get, making a connection that way. And so mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll figure out what the, what the equivalent is. Um. <laughs> um, is there anything else related to the libraries that you guys want to talk about? Like it, you've said a lot of really interesting stuff that has been very outside of what we've heard so far. So I don't know if you have more of that you want to share. Well, I could speak to the technology services side of things. Um, So we have a couple of services um, at the library normally. We have 3D printing and vinyl cutting. um, And we we lend out a lot of different um, equipment, like 360 cameras and GoPros and things like that for students to do different creative and um, to use for faculty as well to use in research. Um, And so we did have to shut down our 3D printing service um, 
because it calls people to come in to pick up their prints and um, also because there was extra strain on staff and things and it's a little bit of a staff intensive service. Um, so we have been, it's been interesting because I've been looking a little bit at what other libraries are doing and how they're adjusting to operating maker spaces or other equipment that people kind of have to come in for or um, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, there's a lot of uh, new technology for sanitization and that kind of thing. Um, there's also some protocols in terms of just scheduling, like everything is by appointment, like we talked about before, which traditionally in library maker spaces, it has been quite drop in to use things um, as long as there's, you know, the demand isn't too great. Um, but now I think that almost everything will be by appointment going forward. But they also talked about using, I guess, consumable materials for creative endeavors. So um, things that people can just like take with them that don't get reused because it's, it's more sanitary and that kind of thing. Or um, I think programming is shifting where you might get to take equipment home and learn how to use it as opposed to learn it, how to use it at the library. Um, so those are some of the things that libraries have been doing to keep giving access to technology. And of course, um, remote access to digital technology. So I saw that um, the U of A Digital Scholarship Center has remote access to some of their high powered computers. So, um, you know, you can, uh, access the computing power and the software and everything that's on that particular machine from home to do research or creative projects or um, whatever it is you're working on. And um, likewise, we're investigating um, cloud software so that you can send a print to print from our machines at home and you can watch it um, with the camera as it prints. And then of course we do, you do still have to come in to get the digital object at some point but at that point it's very much like curbside kind of pickup so um so that's kind of what we've had in the works i did see a really good quote um it's actually from a blog for a public library um and it's an article titled how to manage your makerspace during the 2020 pandemic and it is by uh and actually, her name is Diana Rend Rendina, um, and she works in K-12 schools, which, of course, makerspaces came to academia late. So they first grew in K-12 schools, so all of the students who are graduating now will have experience with them. But the quote was, remember, creativity isn't cancelled. <laughs> and I just really loved that because... I think there was a moment there where we kind of went, well, we can't make anything <laughs> together anymore, right? Um, but I think we can absolutely find ways to still create together. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you, Lindsay and Martina for coming and chatting with us. This has been really fun. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, share this episode and I've, I've learned a lot and I'm sure 
Sloan has as well, and as well as our, our, our listeners. I feel like they're going to have a lot of fun listening to this. Yes, thank you both so much. Um, it was really interesting to hear from both you, and again, like we just got those couple of extra perspectives we didn't have, which is super exciting and super wonderful. Thank you both. All right. So, Victoria, we are coming up on the end of, I am going to call it episode 2B, because I think that this and the previous episode just naturally go together. Um, What are your thoughts on this? I'm curious what you took away from this. I know I took a lot away from it. All right. And so here's my take. I was fascinated by both of the interviews we had. I, I feel like the interviews we've had, like not only with Robin and Valen McLean, as well as Martina and Lindsay, they've really given it, us an image of what it's like to work in this grand academic environment, specifically like with the move to online, but also open access issues, the difference between the different environments with online books versus physical books. What also stuck out to me was how uh, interdisciplinary library studies is, which we don't really realize when you go into the public library, you just walk in and you see a, just a whole bunch of sections and you think, oh, well, librarians must know everything, but it's really cool to see how there are specifications within library studies. And I think that's very cool. I uh, I was also struck by how um, in our conversations with Lindsay and, and uh, Martina, we learned a lot about how technology availability has really changed with the fact that we can't really go to libraries in the traditional way anymore. Like, we also heard that in our conversation with Dr. Hannon uh, when he talked about how digital humanities is also affected, like, by the fact that students might not all have the ability to have a proper connection to, say, Wi-Fi or uh, a good computer, etc., etc., yeah, I feel like the conversations we kept having around accessibility were really significant. Um, so much of the last 10 years has just been technology is convenient. It is the convenient thing. It solves all our problems. That I think we could have this false perception that, oh, it would be really convenient to do school from home. You wouldn't have to commute. You wouldn't have to pay for parking or a bus pass. You wouldn't have to worry about being late. You don't have to, you can do it in your pajamas if you want. But that doesn't take away from the fact that if you don't have access to that technology, it's not convenient. It's the least convenient thing in the world if you can't connect to your online class in a reliable way and you're left at the mercy of the system maybe being able to pick you up. Obviously, the library is doing a lot of long-term tech loans, but Something like Wi-Fi that you brought up is absolutely significant. I've learned so much. There's so many d new resources I haven't come across before that I'm looking into now in my in my private time. I think it's wonderful that we're having this chance to learn. When you go into a library or a university, you don't really think about how much work goes on behind the scenes. But there's so much other things going on behind the scenes, like the work that say Dr. Hannon does in uh, talking between with the uh, with other professors to figure out what assignments are working best or uh, say with librarians doing those programs like to 
really build those foundations between students and professors in a setting that they might not otherwise confront in their regular lives, which is kind of what we're doing with this podcast. We are trying to make that connection that history is not something that just put into one box. History is fluid. History is alive. It's in every single thing we do. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that this was an awesome kind of first, not the first thing we did, but certainly a good place for us to start what we're interested in with our interdisciplinary history podcast. Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed these conversations. And I I really hope that you will all have enjoyed this episode as much as I have recording it with Sloan. Yes, thank you to everybody who's been listening. Uh, we've got some really exciting episodes coming out before the end of the year, and we've got huge plans ahead of us for next year. Um, so, yeah, please stay tuned in. Drop us a link on our social medias. Email us if you want to reach out to partner with us. And I think Victoria is going to give you all that info right now. Before we sign off, Sloan and I would like to acknowledge that McEwen University, this podcast, and all the content we create are located and produced on Treaty 6 territory. This land has traditionally and continues to be a home, place of gathering, and meeting ground for many Indigenous peoples. This includes the Nakota Sioux, Nitsitipi, Métis, Salto, and Cree First Nations. You can find our podcast on all your favorite podcast directories and on YouTube. Although I'm working on that, episodes might be slower to come out on there because I, alas, am a tech, but I am trying. Trying. You can find us on Twitter at hist at Mac. On Instagram, you can find us at history at Mac. Or on Facebook under the name of Interdisciplinary History Group at McEwen. We will also leave links to these social media pages and our blog in the description box. And if you would like to have a guest or have a suggestion for a future episode or blog post topic, please let us know by shooting an email to interdisciplinaryhistgroup at mu at gmail dot. That is I-N-T-E-R-D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-A-R-Y. H-I-S-T-G-R-O-U-P-M-U at gmail.com.